Lord, we are so encouraged to be in a room filled with people that want to hear about your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would give us what is necessary to be able to receive your word and to digest it and let it permeate down into our souls so that we can worship and live for him more intensely. God, we ask that this would be nothing short of supernatural. And we know that it is your Holy Spirit that makes that possible. So we pray and we plead with you as beggars in the spirit We are so hungry for righteousness. And Lord, perhaps there are some in here that don't know their need for righteousness. Lord, may you convince us that it is the pathway to joy. But Lord, may you also convince us that it is only found in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, given to us so that we can be empowered to also walk as he walked. Help us tonight, Lord, unpack this glorious truth about the Savior. In Jesus' mighty and glorious name we pray. Amen. You think about the life of Moses. What do you think is one of the most profound experiences that he had? It's a question. It was a request that he gave to God. When God said that he would not allow his presence to go with them after their rebellion with the golden calf. What was Moses' request after he did receive assurance that the presence of God would go with them? There was a personal plea. What was it? Show me your what? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And that always astounds me because I realize how much this man has seen. And yet he still had this understanding that there is so much more to comprehend and behold of God. And you and I have every right to ask God of the same thing. Show me your glory. But with that, do not be surprised if in your request and your pursuit of knowing more of the glory of God that you would receive a greater revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Can we put up Hebrews 1.3 so we can see why? You don't have to turn there. This is just something for us to meditate on. God, show me your glory. I want to know more about you. What I've had up to this point, I am so thankful for, but there is so much more yet to behold. And the Bible tells us about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God. You want more of the glory of God? Expect for your soul more of Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of this series. We are in a series that we finally found a title for, Discovering God. Discovering God. In its truest and rawest form, we've been talking about the triune God, the Trinity. We've been talking about now since last week about zooming in on the person of Jesus Christ. How he is fully man, fully God. 100%, truly man, truly God. But one person, the hypostatic union. And last week we focused on mainly his humanity, and rightfully so, because we cannot dismiss his humanity. I believe as believers we have emphasized much of his divinity, and that is important, we will do that, but we've almost neglected his humanity completely, and we've almost made his humanity almost like a, a, a less version of a human because he was fully God, but that's not what the Bible teaches. He was fully man, except with a sin nature. And the beauty about understanding his humanity is because we get a glimpse and a taste of his humility. Oh yeah, he became man for, yes, our sacrifice, our salvation, absolutely. But there's a statement being made there, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to unpack his humanity even more. We're going to dig into this thing and realize that there is such a sacrifice, yes, for our salvation, but also in terms of him as a person, to come to such lengths of becoming flesh for us implies something so greatly. 
And when we talk about this idea of Jesus being fully God, fully man, we got to be careful as we grow in this, and we are growing in this as a group, we got to be careful also if the way we talk about this, because it's so sensitive, right? It's, you know, you speak about a subject like this, you almost, you feel like you're walking on eggshells because it's, it's so precise. God is so gracious and he's so patient on how we, how we learn this. But even the way we, we speak about this is very important. So we think about Jesus who was not created. When we say that he came into creation, that is right, but we can't say stuff like he was created because that implies that he had a beginning and Jesus never had a beginning. Jesus didn't begin to exist when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He always was. He took on flesh. He entered into his creation. Or another example, we say Jesus is what? The God-man. Now, hear this and and see if you can feel the different ring. We say he's the God-man. Now, what if I said he was the man-God? What does that imply? That he was a man that became God, right? So we want to even order it differently. We want to say the God-man because he he was always God. He is God and he took on flesh. Not that he was man and he became God, like some cults would advocate. We'll get to that in another week as well. And so we're speaking about something so important here that requires uh, care, that requires reverence, that requires sensitivity, that requires the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So up to this point, we've discussed at least three major points concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Number one, we've discovered that God, in his power, in his transcendence, God is not limited to enter into his own creation in the form of a man. We spent an entire Friday talking about how we see God manifesting himself in human form in the Old Testament. And we see finally in the New Testament where he doesn't just manifest himself as flesh. He takes on flesh forever. Forever. So verses, we don't have to turn there, but verses like Numbers 23, 19 where, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie. That's not implying that God cannot become a man. It goes beyond that. God is able to become a man, but even more powerful than that. With his wisdom, not only does he become a man... He comes into creation to be fully man, yet also not being infected, tainted, touched by the sin nature that Adam has spread to all mankind. It's a powerful thing when we think about the humanity of Christ. And people, yes, are attacking his divinity, but we also have people, according to 1 John, that are attacking his humanity. Even his sinlessness. You realize that, right? If Jesus, and we talked about this last week, could Jesus have had sin? And we've come to the conclusion, no, though we've argued back and forth. We, we came to the conclusion, no, because it would fracture the Trinity. It would, it, God would cease to be God. All these important, valid reasons why. But then you come to interesting verses in the Bible that people would desperately use to object to the fact that Christ was sinless, that he was more than just a man. Like this one, Matthew 3.11. Matthew 3.11. What was John's baptism? What was the purpose of it? It's baptism of repentance. And John himself testified to that. I baptize you with water for repentance. And so those who approached John in humility to respond to his message jumped into that water and humbly were baptized by him for the purpose of saying, we are preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord, for the Messiah. We're willing to turn away from our sins and get ourselves ready in righteousness by denouncing sin so that we can meet the one that was promised from of old. 
It was a great statement of turning from sin, turning towards righteousness. And we read that in verse 11. Then we go to verse 13 and we see what? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Uh Uh-oh. But it was a baptism of repentance. And you say that Jesus was without sin. So why would he step into that water to be baptized by the Baptist? This is where we open up because it's Bible study. This isn't a sermon. This is teaching. This is dialogue. This is conversation. And so let's see if it will go to the lengths that it did last week with Jesus, if he could sin. Yes, Sophia. To fulfill prophecies. To fulfill prophecies in terms of Jesus being baptized? Is there any prophecies that you can think of where Jesus was, the Messiah, was to be baptized? It's not the baptism itself, but it's God speaking through the baptism needed to be done. Okay, so God the Father speaking to Christ needed to be done? You're on the right track. That is one of the reasons why, and we're going to get there. Why would the Son of God go into the water to undergo a baptism of repentance? So an example for future believers. Bingo, that's one of them, to be a model, sure. Greater identification with uh, humanity. To identify with humanity, yes. Any other reasons? Why Jesus? Jewish customs. Jewish customs, that's a, that's a historical element that might be thrown in there. Affirm John's ministry, that's another one as well. Wow. Yeah. Any other reasons? To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And he says that. Now, what does that mean exactly, though? Because Christ says that it is fitting that we do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, he gave us the reason why he was doing this, but what does that even really mean to fulfill all righteousness by performing this act? Well, one, let's acknowledge one thing. As Jesus comes in verse 13, look at the reaction from John the Baptist in verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So you even have John the Baptist that was calling the entire nation to repent and to be baptized. And when the Lamb of God comes on the scene, John goes, hold up. This isn't how it's supposed to work. If anything... You're the one that's supposed to be putting me under the water. And so John's statement here is astounding. it's, It's clear that he recognizes the sinlessness of Jesus. He recognizes that he's not worthy to perform this act. And Jesus' response gives us one of the reasons why he does this. Jesus says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting, it's right to do this, for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so what he's saying here exactly is that by undergoing baptism, Jesus comes onto the scene as a man under the law, according to Galatians 4, to walk in perfect obedience before the Father. And part of that obedience is undergoing this act of baptism. Not because Jesus needed to obey, not because he had sinned to repent of, but because we needed his obedience. We need his righteousness. And he walks that out on behalf of us. And so as many people have said, Jesus in this act right here, he's identifying with humanity. He's walking in our place here, so to speak. 
Jesus did not need to be baptized. Yeah, Jesus didn't need to go to the cross either. But he does so on our behalf. In baptism, he does so on our behalf. He's walking out on righteousness. He's walking out on obedience before the Father on behalf of humanity. And here's the beautiful thing. In Jesus' baptism, he identifies with us. What happens when you and I get baptized, though? Yeah, we identify with Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus didn't need to do this, but he does so in order to say, yes, I'm here to identify with you. I'm humbling myself to come to this place, and I'm, I'm, I'm here to walk this out, fulfilling all righteousness. And part of that righteousness, according to the Lord, is to, to undergo baptism. And when you and I get baptized, we're making a statement from something that happened internally with faith and by faith. Lord, I need your righteousness, and I identify with it. Would you give it? It's a beautiful thing. Secondly, not only does he affirm John's ministry by doing this, he uses this as a platform. Think about the movement that John set out in the nation of Israel. Like He was the talk of the town. Everybody was flocking to hear this man. He had the attention of beggars and politicians. And Jesus not only comes to affirm the ministry of the forerunner that would come before the Messiah, but he also uses it as a platform in which he would receive the inauguration for his ministry. Because something happens after baptism in Matthew's account and Luke's account. What happens after the temptation scene where the Spirit leads him into the wilderness? Something happens after that. He goes public with his ministry. And this scene, guys, as we went through Exodus, mirrors a specific chapter in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, which echoes something about the prophetic ministry that Christ would fulfill. So if we can put it up in Exodus 29, verse 4. This is about the consecration of the priests. So you have the priests, the Levitical priests, that are going to be set apart for the ministry of the priesthood. And part of those lists of instructions of how they were to be inaugurated and consecrated, set apart for that task, was a bunch of instructions, but we see something very similar. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. So there was a washing of water that was taking place by Aaron towards his sons. And it goes even deeper than that. We see something else in verse 7. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So out of all the things that were to be done, there's two things that are obvious. One, they were to be washed with water. Two, they were supposed to receive actual oil poured out on them as a symbol of being set apart and enabled by God to perform a certain task. And in the end of that chapter, in verse 44, it tells us what happens. In light of being washed with water and anointed, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Now you fast forward to Jesus' ministry. He comes to this scene of being baptized. And what happens? He gets baptized in water. And in Luke's account, we see something about the Holy Spirit that does what? Bodily descends as a dove, comes upon him. And in Acts 10, 36 and 38, when Peter preaches that sermon to Cornelius, it tells us that Jesus, well, why don't we just read it? It's Bible study. We're going to read Bible. Acts 10, 36 to 38. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Yes. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, 
how God, now look at the wording, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And after the anointing, what happens? He goes about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So what do we see there in Jesus' baptism? You see him being washed with water. And then you see the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And Peter uses the language of anointing. The same language used in the Old Testament. That when a priest or king was smeared with oil physically as a representation and a symbolic act of God being with him. Not only for a task but being enabled to perform that task. So Christ also now does so as the initial step before he goes public with his ministry. As what? Many things but one of them as high priest and mediator. And so this baptism scene, Jesus uses so that the voice of God is heard, so that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and so that those who are familiar with Old Testament language and practices would say, that looks a lot like those priests that were set apart for God's service. See? And as it was said, third, thirdly, that he was setting a model for us. He was setting a model for us for obedience and later on for us to walk into his baptism. So we know, we know that Jesus came into the flesh and took on flesh forever, yet without sin. And thirdly, we brush on this, that the humanity of Christ, brothers and sisters, did not dilute his divinity. And when Jesus became man, he didn't become less God. He didn't become less God. Fully man, fully God. And with that being said, this is the springboard for our Bible study tonight. We want to rush to the divinity of Christ. And we're going to talk about the verses that so clearly shows that he is God. And the objections that many millions of people are bringing against the fact that we believe Jesus is God. But let's just stay in the humanity of Christ for a second. Philippians 2, 5. Philippians 2, 5. What do we learn about the humanity of Christ? That it shouts the humility of God. Philippians 2. Five to eight. What's the point of this tonight? We're going to discover that Jesus becoming man was a greater sacrifice than him knowing what hunger and being sleepy is like. We think Jesus became man. So that means he knew what it's like to be craving food and he knew what it was like to be weary. Whoa, way more than that. He includes that. It's far greater than that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, now stop there, Paul affirms the pre-existence, the eternality of the Son of God, who was in the form of God. He always was God. But look what he does. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. Now that language, form of God, can be used by somebody to say, Ha! Ah, Jesus wasn't God. He was like God. He was in the form of God. He was in the appearance of God. He has some type of thing about him that made him like God, but he was not God. Now, one might argue that until you go back and realize what it says in the next verse, in verse 7. But made himself nothing. And even before that, in verse 6, at the end of it, it says what? That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means that he did not grasp on the right to become equal with God, so to speak. 
That he did not hold on to that. But in fact, he emptied himself of something. So we know that the form of God language is not that he was like God, but he was very much like God because it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he had it and he didn't hold on to it. Realize? You realize that? He, he had this equality with God and he didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp onto it. Why? Because the next verse affirms that. Verse 7 says, he became nothing or he emptied himself. Now, if he wasn't God, how could he empty himself of anything? If he was man, trying to grasp on equality with God, as some would argue, he's man trying to grasp on equality with God. Okay, if that's the case, then why did he empty himself? And what did he empty himself of? Does that make sense tonight? No, he was God. He was in the form of God, equal with God, and he didn't hold on to that, but he became nothing. New King James, King James, he made himself of no reputation. But in the ESV, it says that he emptied himself. And people love to use that part too for this argument. Okay, so he was God, equal with God, and he emptied himself. So then, when you, Christian, who believe that Jesus became man, you must also believe that he either ceased to be God in that language of emptying himself, or he at least eliminated some divine attributes by becoming man. Why is that not true? So the argument is, when Jesus emptied himself according to this verse, what he did was he ceased to be God, or he laid aside divine, listen to the language very carefully, attributes in order to become man. And we don't believe that. Why? Jesus did become less God, and Jesus didn't put aside God-like attributes by becoming man. And the reason why we know that is because of the immediate context itself. What is Paul saying in a very practical way? Why is he talking about Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, but emptied himself? What's the point? Why is he talking doctrine? Well, what doctrine should do? It points to practical response. He's encouraging the Philippians to live in humility. He's encouraging them that in community, that none of them elevate self above others. None of them, regardless of their status or position, would try to lord it over others, but would find ways to come under and to serve and to be like their Savior. And he points to the incarnation to back it up. So he's not saying to the, is he saying to the believers in Philippi and to us today, lay aside your divine attributes. So that you can walk in humility like Jesus did. He's not even saying lay aside your human attributes. There's nothing of attributes that he's telling you to lay aside. What he's telling you to do is, verse 8. Being made nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form. So what? Becoming a servant is what Paul has in mind with concerning emptying yourself. So hear this very carefully, brothers and sisters. It's not about Jesus laying aside divine attributes. It's about Jesus laying aside divine privileges. Big difference. Not attributes, privileges. There was something about Jesus in his Godhood. There was something about his glory and position that he had before his incarnation that he willfully laid aside to become a servant to those who in comparison were lesser in power, lesser in status, to such a degree that his servanthood went to suffering on a cross. 
And Paul says, imitate that. I want you to imitate that kind of humility, the humility that your Savior displayed when he came off his throne to be conceived in the womb of a virgin and then later to take on a body to ultimately die for all men. The privileges that Christ laid aside is what Paul has in mind, not his attributes. And we can confirm that with one verse that is a knockout verse. Can we just put it up in Colossians 2.9? Do you guys know which one it is? Colossians 2.9 that affirms what we're saying. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Talking about Jesus, in that body that Jesus took, fullness of deity was in there. Not part deity, not some attributes and others not. Fullness of Godhead in the fullness of man. So we know that based on this, comparing it to Philippians 2, that he's not talking about laying aside or ceasing to become God, but laying aside privileges as God. His honor, his glory, his position was put aside so that he could come into this world and become a servant. And Paul says, would you do the same with one another? Would you respond to one another with that kind of humility? Would you see the world the way Christ saw the world at one point and continues to see the world? That's what he's saying. Guess what? He uses doctrine to do it. He uses doctrine to do it. And that's what this Bible study for. It's not to just say, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. It's to say, Lord, help me imitate you, love you, and worship you more than I ever did before. Isaiah 53.2 speaks about this. Isaiah 53.2, that whole chapter, that glorious chapter that speaks so detailed about the suffering servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Look what it says about Jesus. A prophetic statement. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So in speaking about Christ to come in the flesh to suffer for the world, there was nothing about his apparel, there was nothing about his physical appearance that was majestic or, or in splendor that would attract the human eye. He didn't walk around like a prince. He didn't walk around capturing people's attention with his, uh, his apparel or how he carried himself. In, in fact, he probably was like an ordinary looking Jewish man in his day. So even in his physical appearance, there was this laying aside where we don't see Jesus like how we see him in Revelation chapter 1. With glowing eyes of fire and hair white as wool. Feet burnished like bronze that made John the Beloved who laid his head on his bosom fall as a dead man as a response to it. He didn't come to the earth like that. He had no form. He had no beauty, no majesty that would attract. What did attract the people to Jesus? His authority. What did attract people? His miraculous power. What did attract people? The things that he taught. His scandalous grace. That's what attracted people. But Isaiah says there is nothing about him physically that would have brought people to him because he also emptied himself of that. And so you have Jesus in that familiar passage where you have James and John saying, hey Jesus, when you come in your glory, can we sit on your right and left? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm willing to drink? Yeah, we are. And they did. They drank that cup of suffering. Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? He wasn't talking about water baptism. He was talking about the baptism of suffering that he endured. And guess what they did? 
James was killed and John was put on the island Patmos. They drank the cup. Then he goes on to bring in the boys because the other boys were upset that they were asking for such thing. Because all of them wanted to be great. So Jesus, let's, let's go through the kingdom of God's aspect and definition of greatness. You want to be great? Be a slave. You want to be first? Be slave. Be servant to all. And he says this, what, in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. I came down not to be served, but with the intention of serving. And the climactic act of my service to humanity is that I would give my life up as a ransom for many. That's what I did. And I want you to imitate me. See, again, this is Christ's teaching that Paul is, in a sense, pointing to. Imitate the master in the incarnation. That he became a servant. Is that not what's the most attractive thing about Jesus? The fact that he became flesh. The fact that this God who was in blazing holiness that would make Isaiah the prophet touch his own lips and say, oh, I'm unclean. Come to the place where he washes the feet of grown men. He's saying here that this is what I want you to imitate. So what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Jesus did not use the fact that he was the king of the universe. Jesus did not use his sovereign authority to get what he wanted from man. What did he do? He compelled his followers to obey him and love him with glorious deeds of love and self-sacrifice. Calling them to imitate him. So when he washes the disciples' feet, he says, Don't you call me Lord and teacher, and rightfully so, but look what I'm doing. I'm washing your feet. Do it to one another. So by emptying himself, from going from a place where the angels would not even dare to show their feet, he comes and he washes feet. That's what we're talking about here. And so Paul is is, is pleading with the Christians, even Christians today, just look at how he emptied himself And would you do the same in your own perspective? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Look at how you can, whatever rights you even have to lay aside for the good of others, would you go to that length and to that extent? That's what he's saying. And by understanding this truth, it gives a lot of answers to questionable verses that, again, people would use as ammo against the deity of Christ. Question for us, what does this verse mean? In John 14, 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. The father is greater than I. Aha, Jesus is in God. How can you say that Jesus, if he's equal with God, why would he dare to say that the father is greater than I? Any answers to that? Yes, brother. In positioning to the triune God, that's where he places himself. Places himself beneath the Holy Spirit and the Father. He sees the, he's that. So the Trinity is huge in this because we understand that he's making a distinction between him and the Father within the Godhead. And so in position, you're saying. So the word greater can have different meanings, right? When you hear the word greater, depending on its context, it can imply different things. So you think of the word greater in that same chapter in John 14, 12. Can we put up John 14, 12 and see what it says when Jesus uses the very same word greater? What does he say here to his disciples? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works 
than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What did Jesus mean by disciples and even followers of Christ doing greater works, specifically disciples, greater works than him? What do you mean by greater works? Greater in quality? Greater in value? Numbers, specifically. Greater in quantity. So here we see in the context that they would do greater exploits. They would reach a greater amount of people. Their miracles weren't greater in in sense of power, value, or effectiveness, so to speak. Yes, there was more people that were touched by their miracles, and that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. You will do greater works. So Peter preaches, 3,000 get saved. The gospel goes around the world through these apostles. Greater, in this context, is speaking about quantity. Then you have greater in terms of what? As our brother said, position or rank, status, value, essence, nature. And then there's greater, of course, in superiority or quality. So how do we know that when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, we already know he's not talking about greater in terms of quantity. But how do we know that he's speaking about position and not essence? God is greater than I in nature and in essence. Is that what Jesus is saying? Or are you saying God is greater than I in position and rank and status? See the difference? As humans, we're greater than hamsters. I hope you believe that. In this world, crazy philosophies are going out. People would argue that hamsters are greater than humans. But in terms of value, in terms of importance, in terms of dignity, humans carry greater value than your pet gerbil. You had your hand up? I was going to say, um, yeah, there's multiple times, even in the Old Testament, we talked about uh, where Jesus is the angel of the Lord, angel in this sense being messenger, and even in the New Testament, he said, I am sent by God, implying that, in, not in terms of uh, superiority, like he said, quality, but instead in terms of position. Position and rank. So let's, let's look at the very same chapter and see why it cannot mean essence or nature. We go to verse 13 and 14. Look what Jesus says. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus' name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus is making himself an object of prayer. You ask anything in my name, I'm going to do it. What does that imply about Jesus and his nature? Think about it. He's speaking to a plural of disciples. So in saying so, he's saying, even if you guys pray all at the same time in different places, I'll be able to hear you and I'll be able to answer you all. So what does that imply about his ability? Supernatural. Supernatural. Same ability as God. Omnipresent. Omnipresent, omnipotent, all power and omniscient, all knowing. I know what you're praying and what you're praying on this side of the world. That's why we got to be very careful when we speak about praying to certain things or people. You're claiming that they are on the same level as God. Jesus is making that claim. I'm able to hear you all at the same time and answer your prayers at different times or at the same time, if I will. And so by this verse, he's claiming omniscience, omnipotence. Then you go to verse 23 of the same chapter and look what Jesus says about himself again. 
Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So not only does he place himself on the same level as the father, but he is promising that both him and the father will come and make his home with who? The one who loves him. So if everyone in here loves God, guess what's going to happen? The father and the son will make their home with you, implying very clearly omnipresence. So he's going to make your home, his home with you. He's going to, even though if you go to work tomorrow and you go to a different place for work, he's going to make his home with both of you. So in the very chapter, Jesus is saying, I have all knowledge, I have all power, and I'm omnipresent. So when he says that the Father is greater than I, we know he is not saying that he is on a different level of nature or essence. Bringing it down to one last option, that he is in fact speaking about his rank and his position. So then three chapters later, when you have the Son of God praying the high priestly prayer in verse 5. And I see somebody nodding his head because they, they know where we're going with this. In John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus prays that glorious prayer in that whole chapter, he says something to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. With what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There was a glory that Christ possessed before his incarnation, which according to this verse, tied to Philippians 2, 5 to 8, he laid aside so that he can come and perform the will of God. And as he's approaching the end of his mission, he is pleading with the Father, Oh God, now would you take me back and restore that shared glory that I had with you? Would you bring me back into that atmosphere of heaven would you bring me back into that place of worship where all the angels and the, all the, the things that would cause us to go insane just by seeing? Would you bring me back to that state? That's what he's asking the Father, because he laid that aside. So we know that when it says that he emptied himself, in conclusion to this thought, that he left a heavenly atmosphere, he laid aside his glory that he shared with the Father, he stepped out of his heavenly position to do what? We can use this word, because it's true, to endure humiliation and suffering, and to serve those that could not serve themselves in terms of their salvation, ultimately becoming a suffering servant and a sacrifice for all humanity. So Jesus becoming man was not just him knowing what it feels like when your stomach is empty and knowing what it feels like when you haven't had a good night's sleep. Jesus becoming man was a greater sacrifice, laying aside his glory, what king would do that? Not for people that are begging heaven, but for rebels and for enemies of God. This is what he does. You can safely even say this, that by emptying himself, he added to himself. A body that would suffer for you and me. That's what Christ did in the incarnation by becoming man. But then we come to verses that you've probably thought of before or have even, some have maybe even raised as an objection. In Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We've just been defending the fact that Christ 
is fully God, fully man. And part of Christ being fully God is that he's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. And now out of the lips of the Son of God himself, he says, concerning that hour of judgment, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. How do we reconcile that truth? How do we reconcile the fact that he says that he did not know something, yet he is all-knowing at the same time? We can definitely argue that, that he is operating in his human nature at this point. That according to Luke 2, that he had to grow in wisdom and in stature, that he grew up and learned things like you and I did. But someone said, how can Christ be God and, and claim not to know something? Part of setting the example, showing that um, we may not know everything, but have faith in God that He does. Okay. There's an element there of definitely displaying humanity. He is. He's operating in His human nature for sure. This is not. God is all knowing, but the fact is that He is fully God at the same time. Yes, Sandy. I don't know if this is right, but I feel like it has to do with the role that each Godhead plays. So it's not Jesus' role to know that, but he does do the judging. Sophia was saying he does the judging, but it's almost God's role to know it, but Jesus' role to act on it. Yeah, and that's an argument that people have brought up before, that each person of the triune God had a specific role to play in their purposes on the earth and, and for all mankind. And one of those things is that Christ, it wasn't his respective role to understand the timing of the judgment. That's given to the Father, but Christ would judge. And so there is that, and some would adhere to that. But let's just, let's just figure this out together. Did Jesus Christ know all things? He did. Let's, let's turn to John 21. John 21. This is an important scripture to try to nail down. John 21 Verse 15 to 17. This is when, this is probably one of my favorite chapters in the book of John, where Jesus approaches backslidden Peter. And after calling him and having breakfast with them, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Now look what it says here. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice what Peter said. You know everything. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Hold up, Peter. That's not true. I don't know everything. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't realign his thought process. And it's not in the character of God to leave him in error if he was in error. The same way that in the chapter before, when Thomas doubted, needed to see Christ, he sees Christ and he says, my Lord and my God. 
And Jesus didn't say, that's blasphemy. Don't say that again. I'm not God. Didn't say that. He blesses him. He blesses that statement. And so we can affirm here that Jesus does know everything. Peter knew that about Jesus. Jesus received that statement. Then we come back to Matthew and it says that he didn't know at least one thing. So how do we make sense of this? Think of the context of Matthew 24 and John 21. Just let's see if, if you have it. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, Christ and his humanity as part of emptying himself uh, possibly was limited in that aspect, but Jesus in his glorified body and glorified self is restored to knowing all things. Bingo, that's it. What's the difference between Jesus in John 21 and Jesus in Matthew 24? Jesus in John 21 is resurrected. He's in his resurrected state. He's in his resurrected glorified body. That's how he's interacting with the disciples. That was not the case in Matthew chapter 24. So you have Jesus in his humanity pre-death, pre-glorification, where he is veiled in his understanding of certain things. And for some reason, this was veiled to him, understanding the time, the specific hour of judgment. But you have Jesus glorified, Jesus returning to that place that you had before he became a man, and now he is operating in all knowledge. Nothing is veiled. Nothing is veiled. Yes? Um, okay, this might um, start an argument. I don't know. But we just said <laughs> earlier that he was fully deity in his body, and we just said that he was limited in his body. So it feels like there's contradiction, and I'm not understanding fully, like, how can he be fully God in his body? and still be limited. Join the club. <laughs> Part of that is this, is that his, attribute, his attributes, his divine attributes were not demolished or did not cease to be in operation. And I think the safe word to use is veiled. Those elements in his humanity, he did not tap into and were voluntarily laid aside as he walked out in his, in his human life, in his ministry. But all of that was restored. Part of being glorified again was those human limitations were removed from him. Now he is still fully body even now, but glorified. It's a glorified flesh. And so when it comes to understanding how those things, fully God, fully man, fully work in union in one person, when I say join the club, I'm saying I'm with you on that. We don't know the exact details of how those things, we do reach a ceiling, not just with the Trinity, but even with the hypostatic union. And so the, the best thing that we can do is just take verses and let them just speak for themselves and say, this is what the scripture says. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, was, I have a question. So is it important because of the direct correlation when Peter denied Jesus three times? And now, uh, now John is saying, I mean, John, I mean, obviously in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is asking three times, do you love me? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Peter denies Jesus three times, and Jesus, he, he asked him to affirm his love three times, and that's why at the third time he was grieved. Not only that, when they have that breakfast, it's over a charcoal fire. And if you read John 19 carefully, you see that Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire when he denied the Savior. And so he comes up to that breakfast scene, and guess what he's smelling? He's smelling a charcoal fire. And all it's doing, I'm sure, is bringing back that memory again of where he denied the very one he loved. And Jesus doesn't burn him. Jesus receives him again. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation, yeah. Yeah, when I think about this uh, verse, about this you know, topic, I always 
Remember this verse, can I read it? Yeah, it's sure. John 12, uh, 49. says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, <coughs> what to say and what to speak. Hmm. So is that, you know, if we put these two things or two incidents together, we can clearly, you know, say that the Father has not given him that moment what to speak, to say, when is the day of judgment. Sure, absolutely, because he was under subjection. Speaking of him, you know, his uh, own authority, but what Father is speaking to him and giving to him what to speak to. Absolutely, so you see the Christ in subjection to the Father, not only in his deeds, but even in what he was saying, right? Absolutely, I think that is a verse to use. Now, here's the thing, and we're going to... Yes, Stephanie, please. Um, so, after he was resurrected, he, you said that you know, he knew um, more. Mm -hmm. So, then, would you say that before he was man, he knew all of this? That's a great question. Yeah, then... Well, by definition, absolutely, because he was fully God. He was fully God. So, to say that he didn't have all knowledge before that, to say that he wasn't God... So again, remember when he comes to that place, and that's a beautiful question, when he empties himself, there was that veiling that took place in that humanity. You think about, think about the extent of that sacrifice, even on an intellectual level, is profound. It's profoundly great. And I hope our hearts are stirred tonight to realize the, the love that Jesus has for his people. Yeah. yeah, one more thing I want to add. Uh, in Acts, book of Acts, when they are asking him a question, he's not saying or telling them, I don't know, or the son doesn't know. He's just ignoring the question, saying, you know, telling them it's not for you to know. In chapter 1, you're saying? Yeah. When they said, oh, is this the time where you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, yeah, let's, let's not get into that conversation. Would you spend that energy to go and preach the gospel? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come. Go and win as many as you can. The yeah, kingdom he's, of God. Not, he does, he's not saying there, I don't know again, or something like that. Mm -hmm. After the resurrection. Beautiful. Yeah. Right, absolutely, it's true. And people are spending a lot of time trying to figure out the exact date and are actually giving dates. That's a dangerous thing, right? Uh, thinking about this verse, it's um, you know, as you just said, that how um, it implies how God emptied Himself in that situation, and I do believe that this is one of the most humbling um, verses talking about Christ. Can we say that Christ humbly so chose not to know in the human form? That he chose not to know in that moment or in general? No, in that moment. I don't see anything in the text that would imply that. I would just take it back to when he initiated that act of humbling himself and emptying himself. That was a part of the package. That he would be limited in certain things. Because you also see him working with omniscience, where he knew the thoughts of those that were before him and, and he knew what spirit they were speaking of. And so there was a knowledge that he actually tapped into that was supernatural as well. So did he in that moment choose not to know? I don't think he had a choice not to know. I just believe that what the scriptures are presenting is that it was veiled to him. And he obviously knew that he didn't know. He obviously knew that he didn't know. And to some, we can actually even say that he knew that that was limited to him. So when he's asking for the glory to be returned to him, I'm sure that was a part of the request too. Yeah. Can I follow up? Um, the, the reason I said that because we know how Christ lived and he showed his deity in so many different ways of his life. 
Yet I think it was in this situation and when the woman was bleeding that he also chose not to know at that time. Or he didn't know at that time since he asked who touched my robe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the reason why I'm asking this question, because it's only two situations sure. among many other situations that he showed his deity. Yeah, that's a great point. Where there's two specific scenes where he's displaying limited knowledge. So did he so the question is, did he choose not to know in that moment. I think we can, if we want to be consistent, we would say, did he choose to be hungry? Did he choose to be tired? Or was that his human flesh in operation? So Barrett and then our sister over here, if you want to say something. From the, from the verse Corbis shared, that I only speak what he tells me to speak. And it seemed like even in his knowledge, he was at the mercy of the Father. Mm-hmm. So the times when he didn't know, he said, who touched me? It seems like from that verse that I think that's a safe assumption, absolutely. Because he is under subjection of the Father, yes. I was to say exactly what he was going to say. He spoke when the Father told him to speak. Sure. That's a great verse, yeah. That's a great verse that you brought up, Gorgis. That's a really important verse to, to tie into this. Now, with that verse, that mainly, actually, Muslims will bring up, that Matthew 24, 36 verse, concerning him not knowing the day or the hour, What's so powerful about that is actually it backfires. It backfires. Does anybody know how that verse backfires on somebody that's trying to defame the deity of Christ? If we can bring that up, verse uh, Sarah, if you don't mind, please. In Matthew 24, 36, how does that verse actually backfire when somebody wants to try to attack the deity of Jesus? The next verse. So there's another verse after that, but just this verse. Just that verse right here. What, what do we see here that makes a strong point about who Jesus Christ really is? It's because he's distinct from every other thing listed in the verse. So what do we see there? You're right. He is distinct. There are angels, uh, no one, assuming human beings. The sun is distinct from all the rest. Bingo. Do you notice the ascending order? But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. King James would say, no man knows. Implying man, no one knows, boom. You have one hierarchy there, man. Then above man, you have angels, not even the angels of heaven. Now, if you were to compare angels of heaven and man, including prophet and kings, if you're going to put your money on anybody concerning who's going to have knowledge about when the second coming and when the judges, probably angels. Why? Because Matthew 18.10 tells us that they stand before the face of the Father. If anybody's going to know about any details about God's dealings with the world comparing to man, angels surely would have that knowledge, but angels don't even have that knowledge. So you have man and angels, which are under the category and the banner of created beings. And then Jesus, speaking of himself, places himself above man and above angels by saying what? Nor the son, and by saying son and using the language of father, he is associating himself as the son of God, And he is implying the same nature, the same essence as the Father, claiming to be God. So with those who would use this verse to try to defame the deity of Christ, they are in fact elevating Christ. Because Christ is elevating himself in this verse. He's making himself distinct, not only distinct, but he is placing himself above both man and angels and saying, I'm the son. And the son does not know. But I'm the son. And so now you have to deal with a whole other thing with Christ being the Son 
And he doesn't ascribe that title to men or to angels. And you and I might object and say, well, no, we know that the Bible says that there are sons of God concerning angels and that there are sons of God who are brought into the family of God through the grace of God. But even if that language is ascribed to man and angels, there is a unique title and a unique relationship that Jesus has to the Father as the Son. Here's one example of that, and that's a whole Friday Bible study on its own, Jesus being the Son of God. But let's just look at one example. We touched on this verse before, John 21, 17. John 21, 17. Look what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene when she sees him in his resurrected state. John 20, 17, excuse me. Look what he says. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Now remember, he says, to my God and your God. Why does he say to my God, just for the sake of review? Why does Jesus say to my God? According to Jeremiah 32, 27, God is the God of all flesh. Jesus is still in the flesh. And so Jesus can still say my God. But look at the one before that. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. I'm ascending to our Father. He could have said that, but he doesn't say that. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Why? Because by nature, God is his Father. By adoption, he is our Father. Not the same relationship, though we get to call God Father and relate to him as so. There is an element of the Son of God and the Father relating to one another, that though the title is ascribed that we can call him Father and he calls him Father, the relational aspect of it is unique to himself alone. So then when you go back to understanding this aspect of Son, he's claiming relationship with God on a level of equality of essence and nature. So if that verse is ever brought up to you in terms of objection or challenge, highlight the fact that there is an ascending order. That there is something in which Christ says in that very statement, though he is limited in his knowledge in terms of veiling and his humanity, he is still placing himself on the level of Godhood as the Father is. Does that make sense tonight? We can stop here and we will stop here. But think about Jesus Christ and his humanity. We have some questions? A lot of questions. Okay, Bishop, go ahead. Actually, a thought came to my mind, uh, an earthly example. When the king of Jordan first took, uh, became a king uh, back in 2001, the story came out that he actually, to know what people are thinking of him, uh, he did actually this, this was, this was actually on the news, that he actually went and disguised and drove a taxi uh, just to hear what people are talking about him. And uh, the thought is that in, in his power, he's still the king, he's still got the majesty. Uh, yet in his presence as a taxi driver, uh, in his humility to take that role, you know, he has despite, you know, Exactly, just like that. He has separated himself from the knowledge of what's going on in the country as far as lead the leadership of the country. Uh, but yet he still hasn't lost his, his you know, status, status as a king. Uh, just the thought that came to me is this could be very similar. Yeah, there, I, think that if, if, I think there is something there in terms of practical example. Yeah, I think who knew that the king of Jordan could be used for something potential doctrinally. I'm sure all the Jordanians are really happy right now. Yeah, no more. So, uh, in Arabic, for Matthew, it doesn't say the Son. What does it say in Arabic? It only says angels and the Father. Well, look, it, says, I mean, it, it says only says, like, the people, like, nobody. And the angels, it never says the Son. 
in the Arabic translation? Is that, do you have the Van Dyke translation or the, the New Life translation? Van Dyke, this one doesn't, in John it doesn't say the sun, but in, in, it's in, uh, in, it's Mark, in Luke, Luke, Luke 12, 32 says it, you know. My the sun and my, only the sun and my father. This is not the Van Dyke translation, is it? What translation is that in the Arabic? No, it's Van Dyke. It's Van Dyke? King James, yeah. No, there are some. It even says footnotes, some manuscripts, old man. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Yes. I was, I was going to bring up that same point, that it's the same for the King James Version, and even I was shocked because I've never read the ESV, so mm -hmm. I look it up, and online it says uh, some versions omit nor the sun. So it's yeah. also something that we should take into account, because how is Jesus not going to know about the coming of the Son of Man if the angel of Jesus in Revelation is the one who reveals, uh, is the one who reveals the seventh seal, is the one who reveals the coming of the Son of Man, so how is the angel of Jesus not knowing? How how is the angel of Jesus knowing and Jesus doesn't know? Right. So then we would go back to the argument about post-resurrection, pre-resurrection, and we have to deal with manuscripts too because. Regardless of what translation you would hold to, sometimes by those who would object, they will bring up this translation anyway and say, well, some of your translations hold this. Some of your manuscripts hold this. And so even if you might have the King James translation, are you holding a King James translation? So even if you are holding a King James translation or Arabic translation, perhaps there is that benefit in which it doesn't have that inclusion in there. Nevertheless, there should be a way in which even if the ESV were to be brought up or a different translation where we can be able to defend that case. That makes sense? Yeah, Gibran. It's implied though in Arabic, it's implied that he, he's, he's excluding, excluding himself. Okay. Along with the angel. I wish I could read Arabic. Phoebe, we got to work on that. In Mark, in, in Mark 13, though. Mark, thir Mark 13, 32. Mark 13. Can we open up Mark 13, 32 in the King James? It mentions the sun. Paul, our faithful King James reader. Mark 13.32 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24.36. These are the only two places I believe that is mentioned concerning Jesus not knowing. Can we read, maybe even in the Arabic as well, if this comes up? Mark 13.32, King James. Go ahead. But of that day and at that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels, angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. King James, everybody adhere to that? Arabic, Arabic readers, we need you. Yes. Do you have a different Arabic translation? I do. Uh, <laughs> we don't agree. What is your saying? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's okay for the Arabic speaking people. It says, and it does say the sun. <laughs> It does say or it doesn't say? It does. Oh, so you're, you're saying there is in there. It is in there. Oh, okay. So, yes. I had a question about Revelation 1-1 as far as end times. It says that uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So did God give him the revelation, God the Father? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, let's turn there. Well, you can say that God restored the glory to him, so that can include that, according to John 17. When he was restored into his glory, part of that was God, the Father, playing a role in that, because he's praying and asking the Father for that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, 
to show to his servants the things that must soon, to, soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So that's it. the language there is, is pretty difficult. Is, is the, which God gave him being Jesus Christ, or is God giving to John the revelation of Jesus Christ? Oh, New King James. You have New King James? So if it's, that's the case, then you can safely say, according to John 17, that that was a part of the restoration of the glory that when he asked to be brought into that pre-existent privilege and position, certainly that can be part of it. I, I would say there's nothing unsafe about saying that. That's a great question. Isn't it fun to have so many translations? This is, but listen, this is the day that we live in, and this is why I would, if you're a serious student of the Bible, to compare translations. We can go on a tangent right now for the next 15 minutes and explain how these manuscripts work. And we won't. <laughs> we can if you want to. Who says yes? Really? You guys want to hear about how the manuscripts work? Who says no? People are saying, I'm human and I'm hungry. <laughs> Let's do it. Crash course? Crash course? Yeah. Mike is off the thing. We're getting really serious now. <laughs> manuscripts. Okay. This is going to... Forgive me on YouTube for this. Who's... All right. Let's talk manuscripts. So you have... You had this one translation called the King James Version. That was the English translation for around 400 years. The King James Version was based on a source of manuscripts. Now, we're talking about manuscripts. We're talking about original writings as close as possible to the actual documents that the apostles wrote. Why don't we have the original documents that the apostles wrote? We don't know. But God in his wisdom did not allow those original. We're talking Paul putting it to that papyrus. We don't have those. And maybe one reason why is because because of our sinful nature, we would worship those things. Maybe. So God doesn't preserve the original, but we have copies of the originals in the droves, in the thousands. Now, there's a source of manuscripts that was very popular in the King James days called the Texas Receptus. It was a source of writings that were that, you know, the King James used to glean off of and to have that translation and that was a translation for the, the known world for hundreds of years. Now, what happens? What happens later on? These new manuscripts are discovered. I'm not going to get all detailed with language and times and dates just to get an understanding. So all for a sudden now, modern scholarship discovers brand new manuscripts. And this group of texts is called the critical text. And it was found in Alexandria, Egypt. And we won't get into the people that were behind that finding. But you have these new manuscripts... And what they discovered about these new manuscripts that were discovered is that they were older. They dated way further back than those of the Texas Receptus. So Texas Receptus, popular, was the known majority text, so to speak. It was the one that was really, the one that they really had most of. And then they find, hundreds of years later, they find this, tech, this critical text, which was much older than the Texas Receptus text. So what did people say? Because it's older, it's more accurate. That's one of the arguments. And the differences in there is what you see in some of the modern translations now. So these, these newer translations had minor differences in certain verses. And they were advocated and they were used in translations because of the argument that they date closer to the original writings. And so what do you have? You have ESV, you have NASB. 
that would, and all these other translations that would go back to the critical text. The only text that derived from the Texas Receptus, the King James and the New King James. And these guys would say, well, just because it's older doesn't mean it's better. Just because it's older doesn't mean it's more accurate necessarily. And God gave us this translation for 400 years. Why would we need new translations all for a sudden? See the argument where they come from? Then you have these guys here that have their own arguments. That's the basic understanding of how these manuscripts came about and why we have these newer translations. Now, I'm not an advocate for more new translations. At this point, we have way too many translations. And it makes things like Bible study a little difficult. It would be a lot easier if we just had one translation altogether and we could follow the same train of thought. So now the question is, which translation do you recommend? That's where it gets fun. Which translation do you recommend? Now you have three different types of translations, I would say. You have a word-for-word translation. You have word-and-thought translation. You have paraphrase. Stay away from this one. (laughs) Word-for-word Word and thought, paraphrase. Word for word, what is, the, what is the, the goal for the translators behind word for word? We want to get as close as possible to the original language and make it as precise as we can in whatever language we're translating into, in our context, English. So the translators say, we want to try to get in there and try to copy what this says in Greek into the English and make the whole Bible that to the best of our ability and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So you have, what's in this category? King James, New King James, ESV, NASB. Now, what's the difference between all those four? Remember, ESV and NASB, they're coming from the critical text. New King James, King James are coming from Texas Receptus. Are we on the same track here? Word and thought. NIV, NLT, different ones under that as well. What's the, the ambition of, of, of those translators? We don't want to go word for word because sometimes we might miss the meaning by doing that. Because in one country, it's raining cats and dogs may not mean what it means here in America. It's raining cats and dogs. It's flooding. It's coming down real hard. You say that in China, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? It's raining cats and dogs. And they're looking out the window. So there are some cultural references, there's some phraseology that's different in the original times that we want to bring into and modernize, so to speak. So we're not trying to find necessarily the words and copy it word for word. We want to try to pull out the thought and construct sentences and verses that would get out the main idea. That makes sense? Paraphrase. I'll just say that about paraphrase. There's nothing really to say. Paraphrase is essentially just, there's just too much liberation. There's just, it, it's, it's almost like, I don't even know what to say really. It's, it's not trying to go, it's not even deriving anything. It's kind of just this loose, easy to read, easy to, to, to anyways, paraphrase. What's under that? The message. The message. And the message doesn't even consider itself as a translation. It considers itself as a paraphrase. And so be careful with that because you're going to lose a lot. You're not even going to lose the word for word. You're going to lose the, the thoughts. I would just, and, and even the passion translation falls under that as well. It is a paraphrase as well. And so it's a very fluid and poetic way of describing certain things, but you lose substance big time. So I would stay away from that. So between these two then, what would, what would you recommend? Word for word. I would recommend that. It challenges you 
to try to discover the thought. It challenges you to see what the author intended. It challenges you to stare at those verses, to pray about those verses, to try to dig into those verses. And, and the word the word and thought kind of spoon feeds, and you still might miss something that the because it's all about words here. We're talking about words. Things are things are described here, things are defined, things are discovered by words, not just thoughts. So I would I would say, listen. Any of those four categories, King James, New King James, ESV, NSV, those are great translations. Um, up to this point, we've been using the ESV, and it's been working by the grace of God. And, and just explore with that, and explore with that. Was not planning to do that, but we did it. Is there any questions about translations, or does that make sense? Okay, we'll close with this thought. Jesus was fully man, fully God. And so you have a man who was hungry, but he could say this in John 6.35. Can we pull up John 6.35? A man who was hungry, and he could say something like this at the same time. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You have a man that grew weary. You have a man that was found asleep. You had a man who slept like any person would sleep. But then he had the audacity to say this in Matthew 11.28. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, I'll give you rest. You had a man who took on a real human body, and this man died a death that would kill any human and was placed into a tomb. Yet when he knew that the very mission that he had on this earth was to die a gruesome death, he also said this in John 2:19. It's a beautiful thing that he said. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. I will raise it up.